tonight's talk is about the sacred wisdom of compassion. How compassion and wisdom are really a sacred union. There are three lines of pithy understanding coming from Sri Nasargadatta, an Indian wise man. He says, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Between the two, my life flows. So this evening I'd like to speak about love and wisdom and how it comes together and how our life flows between the two in order to live a very full, rich, fulfilling, sacred life. But I'd like to talk to it about it in terms of compassion as love. Compassion and wisdom are the two wings of the Dharma. And it's said that without compassion, wisdom cannot really be experiential. It's mostly just in the head. And compassion brings it down to the heart, down to the place where we really understand it. It really, wisdom can really flow from the heart. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So, the two wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom. It's said that the great flight to freedom needs the strength and levity of both of these wings. Otherwise, with sometimes just with opening our hearts to suffering, with compassion, can leave us heavy-hearted. And when it's just wisdom, we're all in the head. It's not really a complete understanding. So this evening, I'd like to talk about how compassion or this open-heartedness brings us closer to our hearts, allows us to get closer to suffering, which reveals a great deal of wisdom when we can open to approach and with a kindness, a gentleness of heart, be able to see life as it is, very deep ways. And then how this clarity of wisdom naturally strengthens greater compassion in our hearts, how compassion is a natural outpouring of wisdom. So one leads to another, leads to another, compassion being the natural outpouring of wisdom, uh, then brings us closer and more deeply into understanding life. We understand then the cycle of this inner and outer transformation that we're experiencing, deeply experiencing here in retreat. Each one of us is drawn to spiritual practice for various and unique reasons. We want to be more open, usually, is a, is a very uh, universal quality that we come to practice with. We want to be more caring, even though we can't articulate it that way all the time. We want to be more loving. We want to open our hearts. We want to be more balanced, with the difficulties of the world around us and be more balanced with how we face the inner world, although we may not understand that right away, how we need that balance, even in response to our inner world. We want to do this without getting caught in aversion because maybe it's difficult to be with or we dislike what we're opening to. We want to do this without burden by attachment because we're taking whatever we experience so personally, attachment to a sense of self, attachment to how we think it should be. We want to be more open to joy and happiness, to the possibility of peacefulness, and we want to know its deep causes so that we can activate those causes in our life. 
the first talk that I gave on Hiriyotapa, the two guardians of the world, which are actually within our very own hearts and minds. These are causes, very deep causes for joy, happiness, a sense of deep safety and ease in our lives. We want to realize how we can see the world with quiet eyes, which is seeing the world with equanimity. And then, in this way, we feel, we experience moments of really being free, free from the places we get caught in, basically free from the defilements. There are many of us who long, who yearn in a very um, spiritual way, in a very wholesome way, to experience the unconditioned, to really go deeply beyond the beyond, to experience nibbana or nirvana. All of these yearnings that we have, these spiritual yearnings that we have, to connect with ourselves more deeply. And in doing so, we can connect with others more deeply because we see how it is in our own hearts. And when we see others, we know that's how it is for them too. We don't feel such a sense of separation. This is a sacred yearning to know ourselves. This is why we're all here, even though we can't articulate this sometimes in that particular way, we all have this in common. We want to know ourselves beyond the opinions that we keep repeating over and over again, beyond the attachments that we have, beyond the pushing away, the aversion, the resistance, beyond our strife. We want to know ourselves so we feel connected to our own hearts, Not being connected to our own hearts gives us that sense of separation and that sense of not feeling safe that we often feel as we go about in the world. Knowing what this mind and body is about beyond our opinions and thoughts of what we think our life is, the pain in the body, the pain in our life outside of ourselves. So this is our beautiful journey here together. And many of you have been on this journey already. We know many of you, and we've been very, in a very uh, close-up way, we've been on this journey together, the journey of our life. We have this understanding and this yearning to more clearly experience what life is. And because of this, we enter another realm when we're here. And that is the realm of the moment-to-moment experience, when the truth of beingness and suchness is revealed to us. This is from Hafiz, the, the great Sufi master who lived in the 1300s. When the words stop and you can endure the silence that reveals your heart's pain, or of the emptiness, or that great wrenching, that sweet longing. That is the time to try and listen to what the Beloved's eyes most want to say. And that Beloved is that that deep yearning for connection to something beyond what we think we know already. We learn that sometimes mindfulness is not enough. As our teacher, one of our teachers, Utejaniya, says, mindfulness alone is not enough. We need wisdom to navigate us through this life. We need what it takes to realize and receive the truths of life. What we need basically is a time for inner stillness like this, a time that we can have great moments of silence, The outer silence really helps the inner silence. The outer stillness really supports the inner stillness. We need courage, the courage of compassion, to be able to open to the truths of life, the suffering that we 
our experience and we see others' experience. We need equanimity, which is called the crowning glory of all the Brahma-viharas, because it helps us to open to all this with balance, with ease, as you've all been learning about in the last three days more directly. We need practicing remembering our goodness and remembering the goodness of others so that we remember the goodness of life and we can see it all the time because we are remembering it. Sometimes it's hard for us to do metta, for us to do equanimity or compassion practice. I really do understand that. It gets frustrating for me also. But I remember what the Buddha said, what we practice, what we repeat to ourselves and others over and over again. To that, our hearts and minds will incline. And you have seen so clearly, as we have seen, what our hearts and minds repeat over and over again when it's not repeating the metta phrases or repeating the equanimity phrases. Where does it go? It doesn't go to good places usually. It goes to places where we're berating ourselves and others, where we're judging and condemning. We're not believing the peace that can be there. We, when joy comes, we're suspicious of it sometimes. So it really helps to rehearse, to practice these ways, to incline the mind over and over again to goodness, to experiencing and knowing our goodness and the goodness of others as we do in metta, and also with our equanimity practice. I find that sometimes when I'm doing equanimity practice or metta practice, it's not really feeling that it's coming from my heart or that I'm really into it, but I'd rather be saying those phrases than just letting the mind go to where it usually goes. Instead of repeating words of love, I could be repeating other four-letter words, believe it or not. (laughs) It does go there. I raised four children, but I was also raised by four children. (laughs) And... uh, It gets difficult. So I may have mentioned before, um, I don't remember now what the the retreats all kind of meld together. I may have mentioned before that I had found an old journal where I had written about a quiet desperation that I had. And I didn't know what it was all about. It was just this kind of running desperation, anguish that I had in my life. Even when life was okay, you know, I could pay the bills, there was food in the refrigerator, and I wasn't behind on the mortgage payment, and my kids were fairly okay. Nobody was doing anything that was making me run to the doctor and find out if anybody was pregnant or doing drugs. So even with that, there was quiet desperation. And so I asked Manindraji, What is this that I feel? Even when things are fairly okay, there's a quiet desperation running through life. And he said, uh, one of the things that could be happening to you is this spiritual urgency. You've mentioned to me, he would say uh, in, in his own way, you've mentioned to me about this way that you really, really want to be free. You see these places in your heart that aren't comfortable and you wish they could go away, but you don't know how to do it. This is spiritual urgency. There's a word for it in Pali, that ancient language, that's called samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, samvega. It's that real deep urgency to be free. A lot of times that quiet desperation is also what Annie spoke about last night, and that is really facing the first noble truth of suffering, not making it personal, but really facing it on a very deep level. There can be then that kind of quiet anguish and anxiety that runs through our life. And we can't know what it is. Sometimes uh, that experience of dukkha or suffering comes just 
head on and I just have to experience it with an open heart, just really confronting it. And it has no subject matter at all. I call that dukkha without an object or without a subject. It's just plain old suffering. And that's all I can do is call it, this is dukkha. This is the truth of life. I repeat to myself many, many times, this is how it is, this is what the Buddha said, this is true. It's not just true because it's said in the Four Noble Truths as a doctrine, but it's true because it's experienced in my heart as a Dhamma, in my own heart. So during this time, I asked Munindraji, what is the meaning of my life? What is the reason for my being alive? And the answer was very clearly to develop wisdom and compassion. That is the meaning of your life. That is the reason for your living, to develop wisdom and compassion, to see deeply the true nature of life, and to see it deeply We need to have compassion, to really open to it, because compassion brings us closer to the truth. It helps us to have the courage to not flinch when we open to something difficult. It brings us closer to suffering. As I expressed uh, different times in the subject matter of metta and also of equanimity, when metta turns to suffering, it brings out the aspect of compassion. When it turns to joy, it brings out the aspect of sympathetic joy. And when it turns, it opens to both the joy and suffering, it brings out the aspect of equanimity. So we need this very, very much in life. We need that gentleness, which is compassion, that noble heart that Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche called compassion noble heart because it helps us to open to the noble truth of suffering, that universal truth, not taking suffering personally, not blaming ourselves or others for the suffering, not going there, but really seeing how universal it is. At another time, Manindraji asked me, what is your spiritual goal? And I came, I've come from a Christian tradition, a Catholic tradition. And at the time, all I knew how to answer him when he asked, what is your spiritual goal? Is I said that I wanted to know God. I wanted to know God directly, not through any uh, sacred writing, or not because anybody talked about it, but very directly, this is what I wanted to know. I didn't know how to express it any other way in my life, but it was a a very strong direction in my life, even when I was very young. So he said, "Um, do you know about the Beatitudes in the Bible? Because Manindraji had read the Bible. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I didn't know the Bible as well as he did, actually. And he said that in the Beatitudes there is a saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall know God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall know God. And so he asked me, is your heart pure? Is your heart free from the defilements? And I honestly answered him, of course, no. They're not, all the time. It's all I can see. The heart coming up with anger, with attachment to how I want it to be. I wanted more peace. I didn't want to see the anger in my mind, the chaos in my own mind. If I told you what I went through on my very first weekend retreat, you'd feel really good about your practice here. (laughs) When I went to, this is just a reality check for you. When I went to my very first weekend retreat, I was so overwhelmed by the schedule and by um, just what I was seeing inside my own heart. I got so, I felt so angry and there was so much chaos. It was in 
uh, a house, uh, kind of this big house close to a mansion that was in the Bay Area. And uh, we hung our clothes when they, uh, they hung the clothes. I didn't have any cl- clothes to hang at that time. They hung their clothes on this clothesline outside of the entrance to the Dharma Hall. And one time I wanted very much to get all of those clothes, just pull them off the line, take them in my hands and bring them into the Dharma Hall and throw them in front of the teacher and say, there, that's what I think of this practice. <laughs> but, <laughs> but fortunately, I, I had some renunciation, <laughs> some willingness to let go of places that would do that in my heart. And I didn't do that, but it was so vivid to me that when I sat down, that's a lot of what I could think of. So blessed are the pure in heart. <laughs> Definitely not at that time. And uh, Manindra asked me that question maybe about even five years later. So I could see that there was a lot of work to be done of letting go, letting go, letting go. And before that, of opening to, of being able to see what was going on in my heart. So I came to a different understanding during that time. And it really helped me to set the course and the direction of my practice. So my understanding was not about reaching any goals in the practice. And indeed, I had been told during that time about the goals of different stages of enlightenment uh, before the final stage of enlightenment, where one is completely freed of all greed, hatred, and delusion. And there are several goals where one starts to feel the mind more and heart more and more purified of greed and hatred and delusion. Bit by bit, it's a very gradual uh, experience, ex- um, personal experience in, the own, in your own heart. So through Manindra's help, I gradually came to understand that it was all about purifying the heart. It was all about lessening, weakening these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, which we are doing here with every moment of mindfulness. We are lessening, weakening those defilements and the various strands of those defilements in our hearts. And with the practice of metta, and uh, equanimity, we're learning how to navigate that terrain and to find the counteractions to them. So that's what this purity was about. It wasn't about gaining anything, any heady knowledge about it or any states of enlightenment or stages of enlightenment. It was really um, deeply embedded in my understanding not to go there, but to turn the mind and heart to the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then that presence of that sneaky attachment that comes into the mind, getting attached to different states and different stages, that could kind of lessen and not be a hindrance to my practice. Because it's a very sneaky hindrance when that comes into play. So the practices that we're doing here are helping us to uh, navigate these places in our hearts of greed, hatred, and delusion, and knowing how and, uh, and seeing how they are weakened firsthand, directly. It may be that we feel very um, a lot of suffering when we even open to the to those places in our hearts, but we learn that we can do it. We learn that that existential discomfort that the Buddha talked about, this unsatisfactory nature of life that Annie spoke about last night, dukkha, is something that we are able to open to. This is how it is. We can do this when we're not busying ourselves by running after pleasant experience all the time or by running away from unpleasant experience. Uh, 
And we learn that we can let go of that simply by noticing when it is occurring in our uh, experience, when it is occurring in our minds, in our hearts. So bit by bit we learn to discover when there's this temporary absence of greed, hatred, and unclarity in the mind, there's this deep ease that we experience. And some of you have reported experiencing that already. Moments of really deep ease. When mindfulness has gained momentum and uh, mindfulness is really strong, it has a lot of uh, energy there, it has a lot of uh, that concentration that needs to be within each moment of this moment-to-moment mindfulness. There's calm in the mind, there's equanimity in the mind, there is this willingness to really investigate, to really see what's going on. Mindfulness becomes very powerful. And in that moment of mindfulness, there, in, and when we can really experience that moment of mindful awareness, there is a reflection of the absence of the hindrances, the absence of the defilements. When that is experienced, our uh, teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, calls that a mini-enlightenment in that moment. And some of you have experienced that, though it is quickly covered over with another moment of a defilement, mainly the one that goes, I want to keep this here. I want it back. What was the posture I had when I was experiencing that? Let me put my foot in exactly the right way and my heart and my hands in exactly the right way. So just by knowing how this comes about, knowing the causes and conditions of the mind, not the body, but where the mind is at, how the mind can continually let go, let it be, and face what needs to be faced with just pure awareness. So with this safety of learning how to navigate the mind and the heart through metta, through compassion practice, and here we've been doing more equanimity practice because we have thought to offer that because it isn't often offered how to develop equanimity in our own hearts. So here we know how to open to what is going on because we know our own hearts more and more. With all of these practices, we're always turning to the truth of what's going on in our own hearts. We know how to navigate it. We know how to uh, feel a, a greater sense of ease and safety coming from within, not needing to be given to us by somebody outside of us, but knowing how to do that within our own hearts. This is very, it's a very powerful experience when we feel the confidence that we have the knowledge to navigate the inner terrain and know it with bare attention without any help because we know ourselves how to do that. It's a very, it's a huge relief to us because we can experience that freedom firsthand, even if it's only momentary. I love what Agnes Au says about this. This was from an article she wrote in the Shambhala Sun that featured uh, Buddhist women of color. So she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. This is what we're doing here. If we have the courage and the willingness to do it, and we can have those moments of non-resistance so that the mind and the heart can just open to how it is, instead of overlaying our idea of how we think it should be and thereby not really experiencing the vividness of an unfiltered life. This ability to face the first noble truth, 
the fact of suffering, not the personal stuff about suffering, not I am suffering, or this suffering is mine, or this suffering is me, but that the fact that suffering is universal. And seeing how uncontrollable it is. This is the talk that Annie gave last night. So we see that nothing is really controllable in life. This is what causes a lot of suffering to us. But to get in alignment with that, as someone said today, was a huge, huge relief to just accept the fact that we need to open to suffering and that we can't stop its coming. Nothing about life or any part of life, any instance of life, any material thing in life, any person in life can give us lasting satisfaction. This is the first noble truth of suffering. If you're still hanging on to that it's possible to have that one person who will give lasting satisfaction or that one thing in life that will give permanent satisfaction or enjoyment to ourselves or there's something outside of ourselves that will give that or provide that to us. If there's anything, any, any clinging to that idea, we'll continue to suffer. And so I really appreciate the Buddha's just putting it out there and saying, this is how it is. Take a look at it. There's no holding on to anything at all, even a sense of I, even a sense of me, of mine or self, because what we notice in our practice when we're really seeing clearly without any filters, is that it's all moving along. There's nothing that we experience in exactly the same way twice. It's all different. Different causes and conditions moving life along. Different conditions coming together and falling apart over and over and over again. We see the impermanence of life. If we hang on, as I mentioned um, the other day in the, I think it was in the Brahma Vihara uh, part of the afternoon, if you hold on, it's like rope burn. It's like a rope that's moving, moving, moving very quickly. And if you hold on, and the t- more tightly you hold on, you get rope burn. This is suffering. This is how it is. But when we live in alignment with the facts of life, the very first fact of life, the universal truth of dukkha, then we don't suffer. We understand this is how it is in life and we're able to bring about the appropriate responses to it that help us to live in life more easily and others as well. Aging, illness, death, separation from those we hold dear. Not being near those who we, whom we hold dear. This brings us a lot of suffering. And of course it's happening over and over again all around us. To face this not just on the cushion but day to day is something that we learn in our practice here And when we bring it out into the world, we face it over and over again with less and less suffering because we're living in alignment with how it is. So I'm grateful to the Buddha and to our teachers who did not soft-pedal this. That's why, in a way, that we must be able to offer the teachings on dana because who would pay to come (laughs) to this sometimes. (laughs) Who would pay to listen about dukkha over and over again? Or everything that we talk about, compassion, metta, you know, equanimity, awareness, facing the defilements, is all about looking at this. We need a huge amount of training to just open to it.
and not avoid it. Because most of the time what we're doing is avoiding it, resistance to it. Running after pleasure, running away from pain. This is the hedonic treadmill. I'm grateful because they believe in our capacity to experience this truth, to investigate it, to know its cause, and to know that it can come to an end when we can face the truth, know its cause, and relinquish the cause of suffering, which is attachment. The other side of attachment being aversion, two sides of the same coin. So this ardency that we all feel, we feel it because we're here. Maybe some of us really haven't um, pinpointed that in, or articulated that in our own way, but because you're still here and you haven't left yet, you do have this ardency. To You come all the time to... You know, there are not many places where Steve and I go where everyone comes to the first sitting, mostly everyone, and to the last sitting. And we just talked about on a walk this afternoon how mostly, I know some can't come because of health reasons, or some can't stay late because need the sleep, need the rest to carry on the next day, and that's perfectly understandable. But many of you do come to this first sitting and also to the last one. That shows your ardency and your urgency with understanding what's really going on underneath this, these veils. We hit a lot of hard places, tangled places in life. And um, I'm always moved forward by this uh, quote that's in one, one of the Pali, uh, books of the Pali Canon. Someone came to the Buddha and asked the Buddha, this generation is entangled in a tangle. Don't we feel that way sometimes? The heart is in a tangle. And this person asked the Buddha, I ask you, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha replied, one established in virtue, one who is wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet, Discreet meanings, meaning prudent, unpretentious, modest. One who is ardent and discreet, this person can disentangle the tangle. So we need all those qualities, understanding virtue, wisdom, developing the mind as we are here with uh, mindful awareness, with all the practices that we're doing, metta, equanimity. This is the way to disentangle the tangle. Sometimes I feel that I can't go on. And when I remember the, the faith that the Buddha had in me and my teachers had in me, when I can't have faith in myself, I carry through with the faith of my own teachers. And then I can go on. So we can really go on because of the tenderness and compassion when we look deeply at what's going on in our hearts, is that we really don't just have the vigor or the, like that courage that we want to get through what we need to get through, but we've got a lot of caring for what goes on in our hearts and in the world. Uh, indeed, we've heard over and over again from beautiful beings like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who says that we really need to have compassion for ourselves first, to see the suffering in our own hearts, to be able to open to the suffering of others and have that kind of compassion for them, that genuine compassion for them, because we have opened to the suffering of our own hearts, we can open to the suffering of others and then move forth with compassion. As he says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, meaning facing it right here, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. We think it's compassion, but it might be just, you know, pity. So more about that later. So we can go on because we can face the 
ever-deepening truths of life in a balanced way, not pushing away because we can't take it or because we have aversion or resistance to the suffering, not holding on because we insist that it needs to be another way, but with very spacious understanding that these things happen in life. It's hard for people. We can see it because it's hard for us in life. We have that understanding through equanimity. We say, okay, this is how it is for you because I know how it is for me. It comes from that place. Both compassion and equanimity activate this urge to help. You see on the um, symbols of compassion, this uh, green Tara in the Tibetan Buddhist um, lineage where they have the green Tara where this uh, woman, um, this feminine aspect of the Dharma, a woman, which is said to carry the compassionate aspect a lot of the Buddha's teaching, has her foot out, her right foot out, ready to step, ready to act, ready to face the whatever is to be faced in life. She also has the seven eyes of wisdom, seeing what's going on in her in life, and able to see and to know what the correct action is. So this urge to help comes from compassion. It comes also from the ability to be balanced. If we didn't have uh, equanimity, which gives us that balance, we would have all kinds of uh, aversion, all kinds of attachment come up and block the way. But with balance, with that clarity, there is this ability to move forth without those layers. I was one time in a practice where it was really coming up against this universal dukkha. It wasn't about anybody in my life. At that time, I felt really clean and clear inside. There, Yes, there were the ups and downs, but nothing was really grabbing my heart or stopping me or the, the deep aversion or attachment that would have been there wasn't there during that time. It was mostly just a lot of seeing how universal dukkha is seeing how universal the unsatisfactoriness of life is true. This is the truth of life. And so I went to this one Seydao. Um, Seydao means spiritual teacher in Burma. His name is Bilin Seydao. I have a great love for him. And uh, I told him some unrelenting experience of dukkha in the body, Dukkha in the mind. It wasn't that I was making anything of it, wasn't blaming anybody. I wasn't making myself responsible because I, you know, I did something to the body that caused such and such or um, anything like that. But really just explaining to him, describing what was going on. He didn't say very much because he couldn't speak very much English, but he had a really deep understanding of life, and I knew just by seeing him in life, very pure-hearted, very pure-hearted. And so as I was explaining to him, all he could say to me in English, in very simple language, was something like, yes, it's how it is, isn't it? Isn't it so? This is how it is in life. You see in your own body, you see in the mind, it's how it is. Nothing more than that. Just with this feeling of deep compassion, which kind of entrained my own heart, and with the words of equanimity, this is how it is. And just that balance that he had, and that faith of, you can open to it. You really can. This is what I took from that connection. Usually our Burmese Sayadaos don't say much, but just by their strength in the Dharma, 
just by their words, their few words, you carry on. Our resisting, our running away only adds more layers, and then one cannot come to this opening to the truth of how it is. But with relaxing the heart, softening the heart with compassion, surrendering to how it is with courage, there can arise uh, this great ability to open to what's going on, really, in a deep way. To face what we have not been able to face as closely before and not see it as personal, really see it all as impersonal. So in that relaxed mind, it's easier to be with difficult experiences and not overlay a sense of me or mine over it. It's just being with it, just as it is. But sometimes the near enemy comes up, the near enemy of compassion. And this near enemy makes us feel like we're drowning in the grief. We're kind of overcome by, it seems like maybe we had been buoyant in the waters of life, but now these big waves come. And we're kind of overcome with the waves of grief that we have. We may be pitying ourselves or pitying others. This is the near enemy of compassion. It can seem like compassion, but we're not strong. At that point, we're very, very weak in pity for ourselves or others or in an unhealthy kind of grief that we really can't let go of. There is a healthy kind of grief where it's letting go of deep hurt or whatever the deep pain is. But in that kind of grief, it goes. It's not that we're hanging on to it. There's also a clarity there of seeing what's going on with a healthy kind of grief. But the near enemy of this unhealthy grief and pity makes us weak, and we can't really face what needs to be faced. We can't really know what needs to be done. (coughs) Or maybe what happens when we can't have compassion is that the far enemy comes up. The far enemy is cruelty. It's not always cruelty to others. That cruelty to others is we strike out if they're in some kind of suffering and pain, and especially if they're blaming us. We can't see their suffering. We can only take it personally and feel their blame towards us. So we strike out at them with some kind of words or even um, with our bodies sometimes. Some people do that. And so this is the far enemy of cruelty. Sometimes it can be even farther than that, not just we, that we strike out and we want to inflict pain on another with our words or our behavior, but some people actually enjoy the pain, enjoy inflicting pain. This is kind of like the very far enemy of cruelty. There's another kind of cruelty where we close down because we don't want to know the pain of another, where we close down because maybe we don't have enough energy to open up at that time, or we don't feel safe. And maybe that's a safety net for us for a while. Okay, that's fine. But when we continually close down, then this is a painful infliction to our own hearts because it is creating that habit pattern over and over again because we don't want to open up to how it is uh, in our own hearts or with another person. I went through this uh, when a, a member of my family was being hurt and physically hurt, and it was very difficult for me to face. And um, my heart kept closing down to it because I couldn't face it. I just, of course, I gave compassion, and I was with, and I was able to uh, connect with that person in my family who was hurt. But there was some part of me that just couldn't open to the 
tremendous um, and awful behavior of this other person. But what it took, uh, because I couldn't open to the cruelty of that person, is I was able to open to the cruelty of my own heart. And part of that cruelty was that I wasn't able to open, that my heart just was so tight and closed down that it really was painful. When I could see the pain in my own heart, then I could open to the pain of that other person. It wasn't really a connection with through compassion. It was mostly first a connection through feeling the pain of my own heart. And then after that, I could feel compassion. So the far enemy is cruelty, and the near enemy is unhealthy grief or pity, connecting to that in a deep way. And then, from that place of really seeing, really opening, clearing the heart of any of that, of any aversion, because can see it clearly, purifying the heart of any places of resistance and closing down, pity, when that is no longer there, a lot of subtle experience then comes. A lot of the ability, the courage to face what needs to be faced and then facing some places of just the purity of mindful attention. Just seeing the heart be aware, the mind being aware of moments of awareness, free of greed or hatred or delusion. In that place, in, the, in those times, the practice goes beyond the defining lines of the body, the defining lines of this body being me or mine or who I am. It's not taking it so personally anymore. What we call body becomes so intangible. Some of you here have already expressed it when can't find where the body is sometimes. Uh, There's a very clear awareness that this is happening. There's a very clear balance in the mind. It's not that you're kind of leaving the body or disassociating from the body. That's something psychologically very different. But it's really kind of going to where our hands are touching and not sensing hands but really just sensing sensations of coolness, warmth, hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, seeing it wherever there's touch points in the body. Sometimes it feels like the body, the defining lines of the body, all of a sudden disappear and then appear again. But there's a great safety there, a feeling of groundedness even in that. We see the various sensations as just arising and passing away. And during that time, there's no fear. There's not cobbling together a sense of self about it. There's just a knowing that this appears and disappears. This is known, and then another thing is known. Things arise and pass away. Hardness, softness, heat, coolness, heaviness, lightness. Seeing it that way arising and passing away, not making a self out of anything. Sometimes it notices the changing nature of it, the melting, disappearing nature of one moment. Even an experience in the body, it sees that way. And then with the support of equanimity and the previous support of compassion, The experiences of the body are seen as not solid, very ephemeral. The experiences in the realm of what we call mind seem so powerful, but again, they are seen with clear mindful awareness as so ephemeral. A moment of whatever mood of the mind comes up, and then it's gone. It doesn't last very long. Seeing kind of Uh, the ephemerality of it. It's very vivid, very clear. No fear in the mind. A lot of balance. Subtle experiences like 
pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences also, neutral feelings also, are seen coming and going, and sometimes mostly going away. Perception, even a moment of perception, arises and passes away. Consciousness, even the knowing mind, is seen as not permanent, not solid. Even the mind that knows arises and passes away. Intentions arise and pass away. These are one of the last two holdouts of seeing clearly. Everything is seen as impermanent. There's nothing to hold on to. One understands that because it's impermanent, there is nothing in this world that can be permanently satisfying. It's not that we don't enjoy life, of course. It's that things are seen, joys are experienced also as coming and going. Of course, they're enjoyed when they're there. And when they go away, no problem. Everything is impermanent. There is also an understanding that even what we call self, because every part of the body and the mind is explored, what we thought was self is also coming and going, everything ephemeral. Of course, there is still a sense of self that lives in this relative world, in this relational world. But this idea of a solid sense of self gone. It's like what the Buddha said, thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering flame, a phantom, a dream. See all compounded things being like these. So it's just the flow of experience and the awareness of it. Just the breath or the body, the changing sensations and the awareness of them. Just a sound, just hearing and the awareness of it. Just tasting and the awareness of it. Just smelling and the awareness of it. Just the moods of the mind, whatever they are aversion, or metta, and the awareness of it. The thought process is like an ever-changing energy field, just the awareness of it, just elemental experience and the bare attention of it, moment by moment by moment, experiencing the purity of the present moment without any filters, without any delusion, without any defilements, Moments of freedom happening over and over and over again. And then awareness experiences this uh, purity of the mind, even if it's just momentarily, and knows this is possible. This is possible. There's not moments of thinking, this is happening to me. This pain is mine. That cobbling together of a sense of self during that time is not there. Life is seen moment to moment through the vividness of this unfiltered lens of life. So at this time, there is a very deep breaking up of the habit patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. And there's letting go on very deep levels. Mostly there's letting go on the level of the wrong view of life. And one comes to see life with wisdom. It's not that this sense of self disappears. The self that has to relate in life, has to um, experience life and relate to life in an appropriate way, that doesn't go away at all. In fact, there's a lot more respect and honor for it. It's just that what is deeper, what is bigger, what fuels life with more wisdom has been open to 
and both live side by side. So we learn that it's not about racking up spiritual experiences to prove to ourselves or others, to reassure others of our progress. It's about purifying the heart of patterns that cause suffering. So we understand on a very deep level the not-selfness of life through the impermanence of life. We understand the the unsatisfactoriness of life through the, also through the impermanence of life. That's why in my interviews with many of you and in our interviews, we're pointing you towards all, all the time. Just see the changing nature of all of experience. See it all as impermanent. Because from there, we'll see all the rest of the wisdoms that help us to live in life in an easier way. It's a deep letting go. It's a deep clarifying. It's a deep purifying. We begin to see the evanescence of it all as well as the interconnectedness of it all. In, the, in a particular time when I was in practice and um, these deep understandings could come to the mind and to the heart. When I was going to leave my um, teacher and he said, what is important in your life now? When I came to understand and view things in a radically different way than I had previously viewed life. He said, what's important to you now? What do you understand now? And the first thing I said was, it's really important to understand the laws of cause and effect. What causes happiness and nourish those causes? What causes disharmony and let go of that? And he said, hmm, that's how he says, that's right. <laughs> it wasn't about that the mind had reached any particular place in practice. It was really about letting go and seeing what was important in life. As Padmasambhava says, though my view is as vast as a sky, my attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as barley flour. And I learned that only much, much later in life. I learned that quote. So we live side by side, this sense of self that we have to relate appropriately with in life, that exists. But the understanding that feeds it, that very deep wisdom of understanding what life is really all about, seeing the evanescence of it, not getting lost in a sense of me or mine or I, a lot of that causes suffering to ourselves and others. So we learn to really take in and and, uh, understand this quote by His Holiness uh, Kalu Rinpoche, the previous Kalu Rinpoche. We live in an illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you know that you are nothing. In being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So what he's talking about here is the deep interconnectedness of all of life. So let that be a koan to you. Along with this, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Bringing together the relative and the absolute. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.